CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Boy, leave it to our host. We're running late. Our guest jumps on. And boy, our host is giving our uh, guest basketball trivia questions. <laughs> they were easy ones, man. I'm just asking him where Will Chamberlain went to high school. Everybody knows the answer to that one. Actually, I have to give him credit. He knew the answer. I didn't think he would know the answer. You need a giant clock in that uh, attic of yours. <laughs> We're running late, man. Come on. All right. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, July 20th. Boy, July is flying by. Uh, it's just moments away. But before we do this, let's thank our sponsors. Sponsors like... Oh. Uh-oh. That's our guest. guest. Oh, man. It's like a doorbell. Doorbell. It's like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. All right. Here we go. <laughs> by the way, Dave, you notice that all the images are frozen? Have you noticed that? Like uh, Google Meet is just like having a breakdown. Have you noticed that? Uh, no, nah, I think it's just your computer. I think you need a new computer. I think. Uh... Oh, it's always blame the the old guy. Always blame the old guy's computer. <laughs> we had no, this... now you're not. You're moving now. Oh. And grooving. All right. Today's show is brought to you by the Chicago Teachers Union, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. Of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you by Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of marijuana to smoke. It's true. They talk about that, too. It's legal in Illinois. All that and more, plus political columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can become a Ben head, chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, S-K-Y. It is Tuesday, July 20th. And live from my apartment and his attic. What's so funny? In my attic. Taught in my attic. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, Diane Palmer, and it's the return of Jason Lee. And no, not the actor. And now your host. Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. Uh, correction time. It was it not healthcare. We're so used to having Jackie Algy and uh, all the uh, uh, James Muhammad and Greg Kelly and all the uh, healthcare folks from SEIU. It's SEIU Local seventy three. My uh, apologies. But, uh, yeah, we'll just edit that out when we, you know, just our crack editing team will edit that out anyway. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this JB's in the race Tuesday, and here's why. But before I get to that, I got to say this. Great week. You have a good weekend, D? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I did. It was good. And I, I know what you did. I know you watched that basketball game on Saturday. Before oh, you, you creep. I didn't even tell you that. You've been watching. <laughs> what are you doing? I saw it, man. It came to me to dream. Dennis is watching the basketball game. Great game, ladies and gentlemen. Bucks beat the Suns. Big win for Milwaukee. Uh, one of our guests is from Milwaukee, so she's very happy. She's wearing her I Love the Milwaukee Bucks t-shirt. Came down to one play. Steal by Drew Holiday. Holiday steals the ball. That's my Marv Albert imitation. Unfortunately, Marv Albert doesn't do the play-by-play. 
when it gets to the finals, I get that ESPN crew. And I'm just going to say this. I'm going to go on the record. I do not speak for my guests who are lined up, ready to go. ESPN is horrible when it comes to announcing a basketball game. Jeff Van Gundy is terrible when it comes to announcing a basketball game. And I think everybody agrees, even if they're afraid to admit it, we'd be better off with somebody else doing it than Jeff Van Gundy. In fact, I, I don't even listen to it. I turned the sound down. I put the music up. I had the Crusaders going, that 70s music. Maybe my guests are old enough to remember it. I doubt it. <laughs> Keep that same old feeling. Come on, D. Anyway, woke up to breaking news. J.B. Pritzker running again. Repeat, J.B. Pritzker running again. He's been teasing that he wouldn't run. Got everybody reading the tea leaves. We discussed it on Friday's Oh, What a Week show. Newscasters all over the state are wondering, well, it's uncertain if he'll run. He still has not contributed any money recently to his campaign fund. Yeah, that's because he's got like $35 million sitting in that campaign fund. So much for the speculation he announced. It. I think it was yesterday. It's all over the papers today. My beloved Bright One Home delivered us always Chicago sometimes. Got to tell you, though, all that speculation, I got to admit this. I did not vote for J.B. Pritzker, as I always point out, in the 2018 primary. But I really come to respect him, how he's handled the state in the middle of this crisis. And particularly, I'm impressed with how he's handled the state when I consider the opposition in the state of Illinois. MAGA. Man, it's a MAGA mess out there. And speaking of MAGA, as soon as Pritzker announced, the Republicans pounced. And here's what their leading candidate, Darren D.B. Bailey, the downstate state senator, had to say. And folks, this is the leading Republican in the state of Illinois right now. I'm just saying that. Here's what he said. Quote, billionaires like Pritzker can't relate to the struggles of working Illinoisans and families. Pritzker doesn't understand the damage his lockdown did to small businesses, mental health, and working families across the state. What a joke. The party that has fought every single minimum wage hike, that has fought every single increase to mental health care, that has fought for, advocated for huge tiffs that go to developers, big time developers at the expense of mom, pa, small business operators is suddenly worried about small businesses, mental health and working families. This is the attack line we'll be hearing a lot of down the next few months, folks. J.B. Pritzker, like Democratic governors across the country, Unnecessary. This is MAGA speaking, not me. Subjected us to unwarranted shutdowns. MAGA's central argument is that the pandemic wasn't a pandemic, even though it was, and that the virus wasn't a threat, even though it was, and that the whole thing is no worse than the flu, and that the only people who are really affected are old people who are going to die anyway. So what's the big deal? That's the MAGA point of view, ladies and gentlemen. And in and even if we are affected by this virus, MAGA continues. Our sacred liberties are more important than having to wear a mask which makes you look wussy. So we're not wearing it. You can't make us wear it because this is America. And we have sacred liberties and you can't make us do the things we don't want to do. Even though right now we're being made to do all kinds of things we don't want to do. Like you can't get on an airplane without going through a metal detector, which is when you think about it, every bit as invasive as making you wear a mask. Plus they often make you take off your shoes and your belts. That's pretty invasive. Then they make you go through that body scanner which has the supernatural ability to see through your clothes. So as you stand, there's some guy in the basement looking at you naked. How more invasive is that? There's a man in the basin looking at you naked, and you're worried about a mask? Anyway, back to DB, Darren Bailey, the brightest Republican in the state of Illinois, the person who will probably be the Republican nominee against J.B. Pritzker. His point is that we didn't have to do anything. We didn't have to shut anything down. We didn't have to wear masks. All we if we had just kept things status quo, all would have been well. 
By the way, that's the reigning attitude of Republicans throughout the land in Tennessee and Arkansas as well, where the virus is having another surge because MAGA won't get the vaccinations. They're not getting the vaccination because they heard Tucker Carlson say you don't need it. And it must be true if Tucker Carlson said it. Plus, you can't make me take this vaccination because that's my right not to take it. It's my liberty. Man, that liberty thing again. Nobody makes liberty look worse than the Republicans. Look, guys, I think we'll all agree. The Republicans are lunatic. And that is the best argument for Pritzker's re-election. We got a great show today, everybody. Not a lunatic in this house. Diane Palmer, president of SEIU Local 73, and Larry Alkoff, their chief negotiator. Talk about the 18-day strike with the county. They're right on deck, ready to go. Uh, and then uh, we're going to take a break uh, after we're done talking to Diane and Larry. Bring on Jason Lee, political strategist extraordinaire. Our man in Texas will be talking about what Republicans are up to in the Lone Star State and what their strategy is to win back the White House, Congress, and Senate. I'll give you a hint. Their strategy is to keep black people from voting. That's their strategy. So that's Jason Lee. He'll be coming up. Plus, you know, Jason loves to talk about criminal justice, the crime issue. He's passionate about this. Yeah, we may do a little Eric Adams wins in New York. What does that mean for the rest of us talk and what we could do here in the city of Chicago? But before we do that, I'd like to bring on Diane Palmer and Larry Alkoff. Diane, can you hear me? Yes, I can. You sound loud and clear. And uh, I welcome you to the show. I also want to welcome Larry Alkoff, the chief negotiator. Larry, can you hear me? I hear you. I hear you all the way here in Brooklyn, New York. All right. A huge Brooklyn Nets fan. Not really. That was my guest, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag that I was talking basketball with before he went in the air. Actually, I think Larry's from Philadelphia because he's got a lot of love for the Philadelphia 76ers. More love than anyone in Brooklyn, New York uh, would be expected. Uh, Diane Palmer, president of SEIU Local 73, is your first uh, visit to the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, I've been meaning to bring you on for the longest time because we've been talking a lot about this on the show, about the 18-day strike uh, that SEIU Local 73 carried out against the county, against uh, Tony, essentially against Tony Preckwinkle. She was on the other side of the negotiating table. Uh, and this has all kinds of ramifications and interest to our listeners, uh, Diane, not the least of which is that many of my listeners are of the lefty persuasion and wholeheartedly supported Tony Preckwinkle in 2019. And I must make a confession, Diane Palmer. I did not vote for Tony Preckwinkle in the 2019 election. And I took a lot of heat from my lefty friends for not doing so. OK, so this may uh, give people a different view of Tony Preckwinkle. We're going to give you some validation. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, some validation. Yeah, Lori Lightfoot, the person I did vote for, is not giving me much validation, Larry Alkoff, but uh, maybe this would be like reverse validation. Understood. (laughs) Uh, All right, Diane, let's start with you. First of all, tell folks uh, a little bit about SEIU Local 73. Who do you represent? That kind of thing. Go ahead. Okay, SEIU Local 73 represents about 30,000 workers across the state of Illinois primarily public sector, but we do represent uh, social services, which is in the private sector, and adjunct professors. We are primarily women and primarily black and brown. Wow, adjunct professors, that's a whole other show. I was just reading about uh, the uh, labor situation at Howard University. I'm actually Uh, renegotiating that contract. (laughs) <laughs> wow. All right, Larry Elkoff, we will bring you back for the, a discussion on that one, I think, after that's all over, because that's a fascinating other story that I've been following very closely. Uh, Howard is one of these things. Universities have this superstar system where a handful of professors get super deals uh, and then <laughs> they just make all the adjuncts who work for dirt cheap, do all the 
heavy lifting. Uh, all right. I didn't mean to go on that tangent. I apologize. All right, Diane Palmer, back to you. Uh, so who were the employees uh, th- that went on strike? Tell us a little bit about what they did and who they were. Go ahead. Okay, so we we represent in Cook County, our members are diverse. We represent janitors, clerks in the office under the president, elections, procurement, ward clerks uh, at the hospital, uh, health advocates, Uh, medical assistants, RT, respiratory therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, dietitians, mental health professionals over at CIRMAC, which is inside the jail, um, CMTs, ERTs, and certified registered nurse anesthetists. Um, So, and we're in three hospitals at Cook County clinics. I think there's uh, about 11 clinics, the jail and offices at 118 North Clark, 69 West Washington, and there's a number of other buildings where we have workers. So how many employees total uh, went on strike, more or less? So our strike uh, was 2,500 workers, um, and these workers work in jobs that uh, help keep Cook County running for the citizens of uh, Illinois, as well as the patients uh, that come to them for services. Now, Diane, uh, I, too, am a member of a union, and uh, we've had uh, intense negotiations from time to time uh, with the people who ran the, the reader, no longer. But uh, And we were always told by our union leaders, a strike is, is the last thing we're going to do. Like, we have to exhaust every other remedy uh, before we get to a strike. And so what happened, lead us through it, that led to the point where your workers decided they had no choice but to go on strike. So you're absolutely right. Um, a strike is the last resort to re- withhold your work. It's the absolute last thing you want to do when you're in the process of negotiating the contract. But I just want to make note that in 2018, Local 73 was just returned to self-governance following the trusteeship. Um, it was really important to our members on the union side that we uh, had an open process that we dealt in honesty, that there were no backdoor deals um, or relationships that would compromise the integrity of the strike. I'm sorry, of the of the negotiations. So uh, we we established early on in March of 2020 goals that we were going to try to accomplish, and that was equity in the workplace, um, equity in both work and in pay. That our members wanted dignity and respect because they didn't think that they got that at Cook County. They wanted fair market wages, and then they wanted to expand job security because we'd had an incident earlier um, in the year around workers being let go. Um, So we also wanted to make Cook County the employer and the provider of choice. But what we got was a group of attorneys on the county side that were determined to break our union. Our chief negotiator was Larry Alcoff. I um, more likely than not attended the negotiations. And then we had Tremaine Reeves, who's our director of Cook County. So uh, we started off negotiating this contract and coming to it with an open mind with those goals in mind. And I don't know if this is the right place that we should have Larry Alcoff talk specifically about the negotiations. Well, I'd love to bring Larry on, but one question I want to uh, raise with you, and you, and uh, this is a something maybe only an old timer like me can remember. But what you just outlined uh, as to the new strategy of uh, Local seventy three after you took charge uh, was a break from the past, backroom mm-hmm. deals, 
And Diane, I know you're, you're not from Chicago. Uh, I think you're from Milwaukee. You told me originally. That's why I said you were a Bucks fan. Uh, but there is a tradition. And I have to say this. There is a tradition among some unions. You cut the deals. And they. Uh, I have had so many conversations off the record, Larry and Diane, with various union leaders down through the years from the 80s on. Who, telling me, Ben, you don't know how the system works. You can't be a troublemaker, a rabble rouser like you are. You got to make alliances with powerful people, and then they will take care of your people at the negotiating table. And then you uh, pose for a photo when the the deal is done, and you endorse them for uh, re-election uh, at the next campaign season. That is like one mindset of how uh, unions should operate in the city of Chicago. What's your response? to that mindset? Um, so I just, just to tell you a little bit, bit about me, I'm a woman of faith. I'm, I'm originally a Southerner where handshake is, and your word is your bond. Um, I don't know anything about backdoor deals. I wasn't interested in that. I'm not interested in being in the company of kings and queens and presidents. Um, I work for the members of Local 73, and that's all that I do. So you will not see me... Um, on a social date with a person that we negotiate contracts with, um, having drinks uh, and having dinner, if it doesn't evolve around the work of Local 73 and our membership. So I'd heard about the backdoor deals, uh, the cigar smoke filled rooms, but I don't know that firsthand, so I can't pass judgment on that. I just know who I am. And I am not a person that will do that. We came up with goals. We came up with how the bargaining team wanted me to behave. We all agreed to that, and that was my marching order. All right, fair enough. Larry, let's bring you in and talk about the negotiations. Uh, Diane alluded to, I think she said six lawyers. Diane, I may have gotten the number wrong, but a bunch of Seven. lawyers. Seven. Oh, my God. How can I forget the seventh lawyer? <laughs> Seven lawyers. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, Larry, just thinking about it. Larry, I don't know if you're a lawyer, and I love lawyers. No, no disrespect to lawyers, but seven of them sitting only- around a I only play lawyer on Zoom calls and podcasts. Uh, <laughs> the, um, your description almost sounded like the culture of the county that we were walking into, frankly, um, and what the expectation was. Uh, the differences in these negotiations is, uh, as a lead negotiator, I, I rely on a bastardized version of Paulo Freire, the Brazilian theorist, who I have bastardized down to, what's the problem, so what? what can we do about it, which is a problem-solving approach to negotiations. Um, there are problems in Cook County. There are problems in the offices of Cook County that run the sort of bureaucracy, if you will, that ran the elections. There were issues that arose in uh, in the jail, certainly, and around the criminal justice system and the lack of mental health services. There were issues coming out of the pandemic and how people were treated and protected or not protected under COVID or paid or not paid under COVID. And there was certainly a lot of issues related to the staffing and quality of care issues um, at Strozier Hospital and the other uh, parts of the Cook County Health System. We entered the negotiations to identify the problems and to solve problems together with the employer. We came with the assumption that we had certain shared interests to solve problems and make things better for both workers, members of the community, and for patients who seek services. What we ran into was a uh, a, a management team, uh, 
Tony Preckwinkle's team that was much more interested in managing risk, protecting management rights, and uh, frankly had no interest or knowledge about any of the operational questions that would be important, particularly in the health system, to solve any problems. So they didn't want to negotiate over the pandemic or COVID or protections and infectious diseases. They ignored our proposals and never countered them. Uh, they didn't want to negotiate over an expansion of mental health services. They turned their back to that. They didn't want to negotiate over staffing and workload and retention and recruitment of staff that can provide care. They tried to ignore all of those proposals. So you dealt with an employer that was not interested in solving problems or acknowledging problems, but rather an employer and a county that was interested in protecting, defending the status quo, the reputation and power of those in power, and to marginalize those who they perceive to be in the margins of the work of the county. Um, and that's what we dealt with. So let me go through some examples, if I can, of what led to the strike. Because um, uh, I've heard Tony Preckwinkle and read what she wrote in the Tribune, and I want to be clear. Um, uh, that strike could have been averted. It could have never happened. Uh, we were there to settle that contract. In fact, we would have settled the contract on the same terms that other unions reached an agreement on. The notion that sh she keeps repeating that we were offered the same thing as everybody else was not true the first time she said it. It was not true the second, third, 10th, or 20th time she said it. And it won't be true if she says it tomorrow. It's not true. If we would have been offered what those unions were offered, we would have settled that contract before the strike ever began. And that's just what's factual. We're not morons. We're not idiots. Um, we don't strike for the fun of it. Secondly, um, <clears throat> her claim, you know, she, one of the things she's claimed is she was a store to the public dollar. And this was not about SEIU. It was about her protection of the citizens. Well, there's two simple facts that need to be addressed. One is the 2,500 members that we represent and their families are in fact citizens of Cook County. Their families are what, could count, what happens in Cook County affects them. And in fact, they're the people who provide the services to the rest of the citizens of Cook County she's worried about. We, the difference between their proposals and our proposals in the end was $3 million, which is equal to, write this down, 1-30th of 1% of the county's budget, general budget. 1-30th of 1%. Most people would say in their budget or in the county budget, that's a rounding error. But Cook County decided it was it was worth going to war with with our union when they know they could have settled our contract on the same terms that other contracts were settled. The last thing I would say is we're going to interest arbitration on two fundamental issues because we did not settle all issues when we ended the strike. And the option of interest arbitration did not exist when the strike started. It did not exist until late into the strike. We're arguing over what the pay should be of the lowest paid workers in Cook County on the one hand. And on the other hand, we're arguing over what the pay should be of the longest term employees, the most loyal employees in Cook County. Those are the two issues. So when President Preckwinkle and the county are taking us on an interest arbitration rather than reaching an agreement over one thirtieth of one percent of their budget and how it should be spent. What they're taking on is the position that says the lowest paid workers in Cook County don't deserve these raises and the longest term serving employees in Cook County don't deserve the raises that are being proposed. And that goes even beyond the fact that they didn't want to negotiate 
over so many of the issues that were aimed at solving problems in the day-to-day and in the long-term strategic uh, issues that affect the health system, that affect the jail and the criminal justice system, and that affect uh, other offices around the country. They didn't want to talk about the problems. They didn't want to solve the problems. We ended up, in order to avert a strike, boiling it down to smaller issues because they would just refuse to bargain over the big stuff. And that's what we're going uh, to arbitration over. So that's, I think, gives you some sense of the tone of bargaining, uh, the limits to what they're willing to actually discuss, what their real interests were. And I would say, um, you know, and if you ask me what, why would they settle with others and not us, it goes to what you said initially in some parts. We broke the rules of how you're supposed to function in the county. As Diane said, we made a commitment to our members that trust is the one commodity we trade in with the members of our union. We had to be transparent. We had to be open. We had to be honest. Uh, we had to be willing to stand up and fight back when it was required. And that seemed to be out of the rule book of Tony Preckwinkle because somehow it, it did violate what her sense of self was and her, what her, uh, her presentation of her public self is. Um, right. It's very different than her private self, I guess. All right. Uh, we'll get to Tony Preckwinkle in a bit uh, when I uh, bring back Diane, but Larry, I got to ask you this. Uh, so, I, I took down notes on what you said, just talking points. And the first one has to do with the lowest paid employees. So folks, essentially uh, at issue were the lowest paid employees uh, in this un- in this uh, collective bargaining unit and the quote unquote highest paid employees in the bargaining the unit. Longest for those term, with- the longest term. So the longest low- term. lowest paid employees are janitors. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask you, so who are these lowest paid uh, employees? How much do they currently make and how much uh, were you asking for? Go ahead. So the difference, so what you've got is housekeepers uh, in the hospital, janitors who clean the buildings and courthouses in the jail. Uh, you've got ward clerks in the hospital, uh, patient care attendants over at the CERMAC Health Services facility at the jail, uh, people who, were, who are patient transporters who push the wheelchairs and gurneys in the hospital, um, all people who were essential frontline workers, frankly, none of whom could take time off or work from home during the pandemic. They all had to work through the entire pandemic uh, as frontline essential workers. Uh, the, the differences between us, uh, that difference could have been settled for a couple hundred thousand dollars. We have a gentleman, for example, who makes $41,000 a year. He's a 44-year employee of Cook County. We actually, this may sound awfully shocking what divided us is we were actually fighting for him to, to make $45,000. We're not talking about, he never expects to be rich in his 45th year there, but we wanted him to be respected him and others uh, in similar situations. So that's an example of what we're talking about. $41,000 after 44 years. Well, those are very important jobs and you're right. They're frontline jobs. Uh, Larry, you're absolutely correct. And uh, these are not people who can go up to their attic like I did uh, to stay away from the pandemic and do my podcast around my articles. Uh, So I have tremendous uh, sympathy for them and respect. How much does a starting employee make? How much is the county paying someone who uh, is a frontline employee, either a housekeeper in a hospital or a janitor in a hospital, uh, what have you? How much do they make uh, right now? So right now, a starting rate is around 16 and change an hour. So we're above the $15 an hour minimum wage, uh, but not by much. And the problem is that 
when you start at that rate and then you've been there 20 years or 25 years, or in the case of this gentleman, 44 years, your, your potential wage growth is uh, very limited. So what we were trying to do is lift the bottom while at the same time rewarding those with the longest term service in the county because whenever because they top out on the wage scale and once they top out on the wage scale, they really get very small pay increases and many years took wage freezes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so $16 an hour is what they put now at the, uh, after the negotiations, how much will they uh, be making from up from 16? Well, the county's proposal initially, it's, there's two things in the last contract, the county, the reason it was 16 and change is they had lowered the starting rates because there was a concessionary contract in 2017 because we were still in the throes of, um, you know, the coming out of the recession. Uh, the county didn't have a lot of revenue still at that point, uh, the sugar tax and all that. Um, uh, and frankly, uh, Trump had gotten elected and the world was an uns, uh, so the union and our members were willing to accept less and to, because we valued the work of the county and what happened instead. So they lowered the starting rates by 10%, that 10% lower starting rate will go away. So there's an agreement that that will go away. Um, uh, the, but the raise that the county's proposed, the raise that the county's proposed in year one of the contract that, Every union accepted, so we did too, because once the pattern was set on that, we had to follow that pattern, was a 1.5% raise. That's a 1.5% raise where inflation is projected to be closer to 4% over the next 12 months. So the only thing that makes sense to make a 1.5% raise equal 4% is to make sure people's anniversary raises in the wage scale add up to more than 4%. And for the longest term employees in our union, they have <coughs> between a half percent to 1% mm-hmm. uh, anniversary raises. And that's what, that's the, the nut of the problem, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and I have to tell you this, uh, that is, how do I phrase this delicately? Really cheap delicate. on the part of the County. I mean, 16, first of all, you guys made the concession, uh, at the sugar tax folks. I could, I'm going to withstand a temptation to go on a recitation, Larry Alcoff and Diane Palmer about the sugar tax, which is a huge issue in the uh, Cook County uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, but uh, so after the sugar, ca- uh, Tony Proquico couldn't impose a tax on us, uh, uh, sugar or soft drinks etc uh, our next guest jason lee has joined us oh my goodness uh and he's not on for about another five minutes but i love looking at his smiling face anyway uh after tony perkle could not impose that tax then she turned apparently uh, larry to employees and said all right uh you make up for it so that's really cheap i'm just saying this uh diane palmer i think that's really cheap that's me speaking and uh, i pay taxes in cook county larry alcoff I pay property taxes, the Cook County Board, and I look at where my taxes go. And all the things my taxes go, the last one I'm going to worry about is a janitor at Cook County Hospital or a janitor at the Cook County Jail or the person who puts people in wheelchairs, you know, frontline employees. And I also am a Democrat, Larry Alcoff and Diane Palmer. I vote Democratic. I extol the so-called values and virtues of the Democratic Party. I urge all my listeners to vote Democratic. So, Diane, right now, all my extreme lefty friends, and I got a bunch of them on the Green Party, okay? They're giving me so much grief. 
been. I told you those Democrats are so freaking worthless. You shouldn't vote for them. <laughs> they are just going to sell you out. Help me out here, Diane. Help me out. Help me explain how I defend Democrats uh, in the face of the county playing hardball with the people who push sick people in wheelchairs. Go ahead, Diane Palmer. <laughs> that's that might uh, be hard. Although I, I am Democrat, I vote Democrat always. Um, but I don't think it's the party. I think it's individuals. And I think once we get past what individuals do, we can uh, focus on helping lift people out of poverty, helping work, make workplaces safe and secure with dignity and respect. And we move on from there. I can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. So uh, I would say that. I, I'll add to it, Ben, too. There were a lot of commissioners in the county commission. There were aldermen. There were state legislators, congresspeople um, who were on the stood with workers in this fight. Um, not always publicly. Uh, certainly uh, they did. And they were helpful and supportive in ways that that we respect. Um, so it, it is one thing to evaluate uh, what President Preckwinkle did in this circumstance and what her team did, um, and uh, which I think it, it doesn't, you don't have to be gentle with. Um, but I think there's another fact that, that, that there were other people who were also elected Democrats in Cook County and Chicago and in Illinois who were extraordinarily supportive of the workers who were in this struggle. That who showed the courage to stand up and fight for their rights and for their families and for a different vision of what Cook County could look like. So uh, I don't want to just, as Diane said, throw the baby out entirely with the bathwater. I'd probably throw a little bit more of that. <laughs> I had a uh, sort of <laughs> snicker a little bit, Larry, when you had a thing. Uh, there are a lot of Democrats who are supportive, but maybe not openly. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Cook County, Larry Alcoff, behind the scenes. Oh, man, I'm with you 100%, but I just can't say anything right now. Well, they, they, I, I don't want to get in trouble. They did speak on picket lines. They did show up in those kind of ways. Um, oh, well, so, no, that's public. Oh, yeah, I thought you were talking like, about the different some, kind. Some people were private. Some people were public, but there were a lot of them, and they were played a good role. Um, yeah. It's just that, that the president of the county is awfully, has a palace guard around her, frankly. All right. Uh, so here's the hard question I got to ask you, Diane and Larry, and I don't care who answers it. I, uh, but I guess I should pose it to Diane. She's the president. Uh, so there are those in the county who are whispering to me. Actually, Tony Prinkless freaking says it. Uh, they, they didn't even have to go on strike. Why go on strike? And uh, right now, so many of the, the fate of, of the contract is in the hands of uh, arbitrators uh, on these two provisions, as Larry just laid out, two very important uh, issues. So why go on strike, uh, Diane Palmer? And in retrospect, do you think the, the strike was worth it? Go ahead. So I would say uh, we went on strike because the county gave us a proposal, which is called the best and final. This is it, that's all. And so we could either take that and say, this is the best and final, or we could stand up and fight back. Um, so we decided as a team that we would fight back, that we would not just take their best and final and say, this is the end of this, even though we knew from other labor leaders that, that the, their offer was different from ours. Our members are not second-class citizens. They do a lot of the really important work at Cook County. And so we decided that we'd fight back. 
Um, Larry, I don't know if you have something. The only thing I would add very quickly, and this is not a shock to anybody on this uh, in this conversation, is that uh, the most important thing that came out of the strike is the immense courage and leadership of working people standing up and becoming leaders and public speakers and organizers in their own right um, and, and doing uh, extraordinary things outside of their comfort zone to make social change and win social justice. Uh, we think that that was the most powerful thing that came out of this strike, actually, that they have redefined their, their role in making history, if you will, and their role in this union and what this union should be about. So I think we take immense pride in the power, the courage, um, and the uh, integrity of our members who fought this fight. And uh, that's how history changes. Uh, it doesn't change overnight. It doesn't change with one action or one strike or in 18 days. But this was an extraordinary step uh, in the lives of these workers and in the lives of Cook County uh, citizens. All right. And I, uh, I repeat what I said. I, I think it's outrageous uh, that the leaders of the Democratic Party in Cook County, the most Democratic county, one of the most Democratic counties in the in the country, uh, is city of Chicago, one of the most Democratic cities in the city of Chicago, can't do better, mm-hmm. can't do better. And that little chintzy raise that uh, Tony Perkwinkle threw on the table. And I'm really embarrassed at this moment to say I am a Democrat. Now, Diane Palmer, my response to if the question, if I were answering is, oh, look at the alternative. Yeah. I just talked about it at the outset. They're out of their freaking mind. We got uh, Jason Lee coming on a little while to tell us what Republicans are doing in Texas. So, you know, maybe the Democrats think they can get away with it because the Republicans are so bad that Democratic voters uh, have no choice, but I'm just going to tell you this, leaders of the Democratic Party. This is me speaking, not that Larry Alcoff and not Diane Palmer, not Jason Lee. This is me speaking. You think you're so slick playing hardball? People won't vote. They'll tell me, Ben, what difference does it make? It doesn't matter, so I'm not going to vote. So you actually, you hurt yourself, in my humble opinion, uh, politically speaking, when you play these hardball tactics, and then you contribute to the notion that for working people or poor people or lower middle-class people, whatever you want to call them, there's no difference in a Democrat or Republican. You hear what I'm saying, Diane Palmer? I do hear you. She's nodding her head. She goes, I'll let that guy talk, but I'm not going to agree to that. Uh, We'll close with this before we bring on the great Jason Lee. Uh, Tony Preckwinkle. I'll end where I began. So many of my lefty friends back in 2019 <laughs> giving me grief because I voted for Lori Lightfoot. Oh, they smashed Lori Lightfoot in their commercials. I could just still see those commercials. She's a cup. She's really a corporation counsel, uh, a corporation lawyer lefties. I, I would just get it right. She's not really a cop. She's a corporation lawyer. Anyway, Diane Palmer, your thoughts on Tony Preckwinkle uh, as the uh uh, president of Cook County Board of Commissioners, was she worth all the praise that lefty Chicago heaped on her in 2019? So, you know, so what I would say is that, um, pres- you know, like I've been an officer since 1997. And when things are going awry at the table, I show up and I try to decipher what's going on and try to keep the integrity of the local. President Preckwinkle did not show up not one single time. And then she went public with her disappointment with the leadership of Local 73. Even even after we reached a partially 
uh, a partial tentative agreement, she went public both written and verbal saying that she was disappointed in the leadership of Local 73. Now, listen, I don't have any expectations of President Preckwinkle as an as a, as a individual, but as a leader at Cook County, these are her constituents, these are her employees, these are the people that help her keep Cook County running. Um, and so I would say, I'm not going to say that I'm disappointed in, in what she did, even though there was always an opportunity, always, for us to sit down and have a discussion about how best to move forward. I was the person who negotiated the 2017 contract and took the concessions, um, the 10% reduction. That's because when I looked, the county was suffering. But when the county was doing better, they still expected our members to shoulder that. And for that, um, I have no no answer. Uh, so I would say that rather than keeping this fire burning or this fight um, that uh, the president and the people that she should direct should do the right thing. That's it for me. All right. Very good. Diane Palmer, very diplomatic of you, uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, Diane Palmer, thank you very much for taking the time to come talk to us. And Larry Alcoff, I'll be bugging you about that Howard University thing. You let that cat out of the bag. So uh, I'm fascinated <laughs> by that uh, negotiation. Uh, where did I read the story about Howard? It may have been in. I forget. I forget. I read so much, Larry. I can't remember where I read it. It may have been in The New York Times. But uh, Larry Alcoff, uh, Diane Palmer, thank you very much for taking time to talk to me. All right. All right. Thank you. All right, that's uh, Diane Palmer, Larry Alkoff from SEIU Local 73. And I'm going to bring on a good friend of the show, frequent guest, Jason Lee. Jason, welcome back to the show. Hey, Ben. Uh, glad to be here. Good to talk to you. Uh, I'm going to warn you, at some point, this is Google Meet, that we're going to get a little notice. This is this... <laughs> If you think the county is chintzy, Google Meet's got this new thing. They're trying to be slick like Zoom, so they cut you off. So we always have to disconnect and reconnect. We've been kind of getting used to it and making fun of Google Meet, uh, Jason Lee. So I'm just going to warn you right now. We'll get the conversation started. We may have to take a break uh, and then bring you right back. Just a little word of warning. All right. Uh, as everybody knows, Jason Lee, a frequent guest on the show, political strategist, uh, he's got his feet uh, all in one foot in Illinois, where he does organizing, and one foot in Texas, which is his home state. You got some big feet that could stretch all the way out <laughs> across the country. Uh, and Jason, there's a lot to talk about in Chicago. Yeah. The last time you were on the show, we talked about crime and the left's uh, inability to deal with it or struggles to deal with it. I know you have a lot of thoughts on that, but let's. Uh, I've been promoting you with my listeners talking about what's going on in Texas because we've been watching very uh, nervously what the Republicans are up to with their laws regarding uh, voting rights, critical race theory, and abortion. That's a whole other issue. Uh, So why don't you lead us through things, first of all, with the voting rights bill, uh, what's going on in Texas? Yeah, thanks for that, Ben. Um, So essentially, just to speed up, uh, catch everyone up, there was, you know, Texas has a bi-annual legislative session. So once every two years, this year, the session began in January. The governor put two things on his priority list. Uh, one was what he called voting integrity, which basically was one of these standard bills that's been, that's been uh, promoted across the country in different state legislatures to severely or, 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 or restrict voting in certain ways 
Um, and basically all of this is a national effort to try to uh, respond to the big lie that the election was stolen, Republicans realizing that their base was unsatisfied with the outcome of the election and believes the election is stolen. So these are the laws that they're trying to pass in order to appeal to their base to say, yes, we hear you. The voting rules were out of control. and We're going to rein in uh, any potential fraud. Now, they acknowledge that they don't have evidence of fraud in 2020. And in Texas, they won you know, these elections as well. Republicans won elections. So they're not even saying that the elections weren't valid, but they're really just doing this as a response to the base. So they have their voting bill. I won't get into the specifics of all that was in it, but basically just long story short, it was restrictive in a number of ways. And then they also had bail reform uh, to try to, uh, you know, restrict uh, bail and make it more onerous to stop these criminals from, from getting out and wreaking havoc. Those are the two emergency items. And um, long story short, uh, we fought these bills the whole way through the Democrats did through a variety of metrics uh, of measures. Uh, and by the end, the Democrats were able to actually stop the bills completely by leaving the house chambers on the last night of the session, preventing them from passing these, these two bills. So immediately the governor called a special session. Governor can call as many special sessions as he wants. It's basically saying, even though the session is over, I'm going to call you back here and you're going to pass my bills. Uh, and so he did that. And he added on a bunch of other stuff that wasn't on his emergency list, but other Republican wish list stuff, stuff related to abortion, stuff related, restricting abortion, stuff related to restricting trans rights, you know, more bail reform. Now he added critical race theory. He added some, you know, you know, banning critical race theory. He added some stuff around, you know, building a border wall on the southern border of Texas. Basically a wish list, a conservative wish list of, 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 of things. And uh, this time around, the Democrats said, we're not going to play this game at all. Um, they showed up on the first day of session for the special session, and then they decided to leave and say, look, we're not going to participate, so you will not have a quorum. You won't have enough legislators in the building to even advance legislation in the House of Representatives. And, and that's where we are now. They left uh, last week, early last week. They left. They decamped from the state to, uh, to Texas. I mean, to Washington, D.C., because if they're in the state, the governor technically has the authority to arrest them and forcibly bring them back to the chamber uh, to 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 vote on legislation. And the governor and the and the speaker of the House, both Republicans, have that authority. And they said that they would use that authority if they were able to find the Democrats. So the Democrats had to decamp to Washington, D.C., where they have been engaged in a number of meetings with federal legislatures, legislators and other uh, elected officials asking them, demanding them, begging them to move forward on federal voting rights legislation to protect Texans and others from this legislation that is being advanced by Republicans in the state. Um, and this is important because, again, like I said before, the governor can continue to call special sessions. And so even though they're going to hold out, uh, their goal is to hold out and stop the legislation from passing this special session, the governor can just call another special session the day after. And these are part-time uh, positions in Texas. They're not full-time. So they, they make $7,000 a year. Um, all of them have other jobs in order to make ends meet. And eventually they're going to have to come home and continue their lives and be with their families and do the job to put bread on, you know, food on the table. They will not be able to stay out of Texas indefinitely. So eventually, you know, they will um, have to come back. But, but for the meantime, they're hoping that this effort – and galvanizing public opinion and attention and focus on the importance of voting rights. And by modeling a certain type of sacrifice, they can compel federal actors to, 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 to take this seriously and do what they can uh, 
to pass protections. All right. So what is the most, in your opinion, offensive or uh, part of the Republican proposals, uh, the Republican uh, proposals in regards to uh, the voting bill? So I will mention that there were a couple of things that were in the original legislation that got taken out in the special session that were particularly um, egregious to certain to certain folks. One was a restriction on Sunday voting hours that folks thought was a direct attack on, um, you know, black church, particularly, which likes to do voter mobilization on Sundays, although other churches do as well, but it's known uh, for something that the black church initiated. And the other thing was there, there was something in the bill that they were trying to sneak in at the last second that would have made it very easy for election judges to overturn election outcomes without uh, needing, um, you know, significant evidence. They were going to lower the standard for reversal. And that would be extremely uh, unsettling for anyone who cares about the legitimacy of elections. Now, after they were denied the possibility of passing that legislation, Republicans actually had the audacity to come and say that those things actually weren't ever intended to be in the bill that the legislative, uh, you know, there's a legislative services organization that is a group of lawyers that write bills on behalf of legislators that they either misunderstood or didn't know what they were doing, added things into the bill that none of the legislators actually intended. So they removed those things, but basically kept everything else. And what's remaining is that what people consider to be most egregious is probably this idea of empowering poll watchers to make it easier to, to give the election authorities or the local election judges less our election uh, officials, less authority over these poll watchers, less ability to kind of remove them from polling locations. So if they show up and are intimidating voters and, and doing things that make people uncomfortable voting, the local election authority at that polling location will not have uh, the same authority to remove them. And in fact, if they do try to remove them, they themselves might be subject to legal action. And what people are worried about is that that will empower uh, the type of people who showed up at the Capitol on January 6th to, to, to go to polling locations and communities um, and intimidate voters so that they don't want to show up. Um, and that could have, you know, a negative, uh, a very negative out, uh, uh, impact on turnout in certain areas. Could you imagine if it was in reverse, by the way, Jason? If the Democrats were sending in uh, people to the polling places where Republicans tend to vote, to intimidate them. Just think about that for but the outcry from MAGA, if that were happening. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing that MAGA would one outcry, you know, they'd have an outcry and then they would try to organize some kind of counter effort of armed, you know, defense of their own polling locations. And certainly if folks in inner city, African-American or Latino communities in Texas were to do something like that, there would be, you know, uh, you know, there'll be outcries from, from, from conservatives and, and maybe even trying to, to get, you know, the police departments are involved in, in preventing that. So, you know, these, there's a lot of bias that goes on in how these things work. Oh my God. I didn't even think of the racial angle, but yeah. Imagine if the democratic party sent in like black guys with hockey sticks, because that's what the uh, insurrectionists at the white, at uh, the Capitol had, they had hockey sticks. Right. You know what I mean? They were hitting cops. Exactly. Over there. Right. Exactly right. You know, but uh, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, when, when back this dates us, but back in the sixties, you know, part of how gun control laws were, were, were first initiated is when the Panthers 
started uh, open, you know, carrying guns openly uh, at the state capitol in Sacramento. Uh, and then all of a sudden there was a problem with that and they started doing restrictions. So we could, we could imagine that there wouldn't be, those two things would not be treated equally. First of all, the only one that dates is me because I was around to remember it. You weren't even born yet. And second of all, yes, you're absolutely correct. Great memory. And they showed up, the Panthers showed up with their guns. And all of a sudden, Ronald W. Reagan, who was the governor of uh, California, started talking about gun control. Right. <laughs> That's the only time I ever heard Ronald W. Reagan talk about gun control. Yeah. That's probably what people are most concerned about. There are other restrictions and other things that, that actually might even have a bigger effect in terms of, 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 of you know, reducing turnout. But in terms of just symbolism and just things that really are, we, we think are just untenable and unconscionable in a free democratic society, that poll watcher empowerment one is certainly something that, that, that we're concerned about. It absolutely. Uh, and, and here's what the Republicans have done in just the wider sense. And you started a, a little bit down this road, Jason. This is what they've done. And Democrats, if you're following, pay attention. They've taken the most extreme stance you can have on this issue. They haven't even made an attempt to accommodate. They claim that there was a problem when there wasn't one. They claim fraud when there wasn't any. Uh, and to solve the problem that didn't exist, they propose radical proposals, radical laws that would, like, for instance, empower poll watchers to show up and intimidate, uh, excuse me, empower people to come in and intimidate poll watchers, uh, restrict, put restrictions on, like, who, when you can vote by absentee uh, ballot, the, who can, t- like, who has to literally deliver the ballot to, uh, to be counted. They've, all these restrictions are attempted, uh, Jason, to make it a little more cumbersome for Democrats to vote with the hope that the, on the fringes, uh, Democrats will just, Democratic voters will drop off. But just think about the tactic. You create a po- you, you, you stipulate a problem that is not existence is existent and you use that as justification for extreme measures. I can't think of any Democrat who plays that game that way. What about you? Yeah, I, I think that Yeah, I think that yeah, they are definitely more aggressive in taking they've got this kind of tripart model where they have the messaging, the kind of legislative reaction, and they will fund or manufacture some grassroots uh, or some perceivingly grassroots activism. And those three things will create this echo chamber that turns some kind of marginal issue that may or may not even be real or reflecting a real problem for society. And if it is a problem, it's a far less important problem than many other problems we face, but they can turn that uh, into something that dominates the media landscape, that dominates our consciousness, that has us arguing back and forth and writing counter op-eds against what they're saying. Um, And as a consequence, Right. There's two problems. One is that the, 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 the cynical reactionary legislation may actually become law and, and, and do a lot of bad things. And two, it clogs the discourse such that our what we're wanting to focus on, uh, you know, child tax credit, you know, people getting money in their account, you know, stimulus infrastructure that will create jobs and help protect people for generations that can't find any purchase 
within the public discourse. It can't find any purchase within the media. And so we can't even benefit from the policies that we're doing that are actually helping people. And that's really what I see as their game. And if they have to do some crazy things in order to clog up the landscape, so be it, because we're going to have to address this. If they're literally banning the teaching of, of the, I have a dream speech uh, or, or, or Susan B. Anthony or, or in schools, we can't just turn a blind eye and stay talking about infrastructure, right? Because that's important too. We're going to have to address that. And even if we, that doesn't happen at the end of the day and we, we stop it, they've still won because we weren't talking about the thing that will actually help bring votes to the Democratic Party. All right. Uh, that uh, leads us at uh, the challenge that uh, Biden and the, the leading Democrats face uh, as they try to convince American voters that it's been good for American voters to have uh, the Democrats in charge. And that's where I want to go next with this conversation. Uh, we're going to take our brief break so that we can reconnect because Google Meet's about to hit us up. So stick around, everybody. Uh, Jason Lee will be with us in about a minute or so. We'll be right back. Did you know you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews? Well, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky or wherever else you download your favorite podcasts. Now back to the Ben Jarofsky show live from his attic. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, Jason Lee is with me, a political strategist. We're talking about Texas uh, and the Republican assault. Uh, on voting rights, and, and really, it's a it's an overall strategy, as Jason was pointing out, uh, just to uh, put the, the Democrats on the defensive. Very effective, I think, to, uh, to on some level, because again, uh, Jason, uh, I like to point out, there's absolutely no basis for these "quote unquote" reforms, and I really hate when people use the word "reform" in regard to any of this because it's not a reform; it's like a deform, uh, and. Uh, what are the other things uh, that uh, Republicans have been saying? Let's get your thoughts on this. Is that somehow or other, it's offensive uh, to black people to say that they don't have access to voter IDs. I get emails, I would say three or four a day from various Republicans, you know, uh, figureheads uh, saying how offensive this is. Tim Scott, he loves sending these ones out. I get them all the time from him, how offensive this is. So what's your response to that argument that uh, Republicans advance? And somehow or other, it's offensive to black people to say that, but for voter ID laws, they, uh, voter ID, they don't have voter IDs. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think black people care about or, or even pay attention to that narrative. Um, the, the real issue is that voter ID laws are not the basis of, of these voting deforms, as you call them. Most of Texas has had voter ID for decades or for a long period of time, and we've already made peace with it. And no one's talking about getting rid of it. In fact, I think voter voter IDs are probably poll um, favorably across the nation. The, the issue is just making sure that the IDs are accessible and that what qualifies as an ID is broad enough to make to deal with different circumstances. That's really the, the sticking point because there are some people who might struggle with getting a certain form of ID. We can get them another form, but we need to make sure that that's eligible. For example, are college IDs eligible to be considered as a form of ID? That's just one example, but the, you know, other forms of ID as well. So library card, you know, can we find alternatives in case folks can't get a driver's license? But the idea that you should have some form of identification I think when you do the polling, folks accept that and they're willing to go with that. 
And that's why, you know, when Joe Manchin came up with his compromise that included national voter ID, Stacey Abrams and everybody else said, look, we'll compromise. That's fine. We can we can figure that piece out. What we're trying to do is make sure that these other restrictions that are reducing people's opportunities are putting real roadblocks in front of their ability to submit their absentee ballots or potentially subjecting them to intimidation or empowering uh, partisan election officials to intervene and overturn elections. That's really what we need to restrict. If this were merely about voter ID, we'd be having an entirely different conversation. We've gone far beyond that as a restriction. And uh, so do you think that the showdown in Texas with the Democratic legislators uh, going to Washington, uh, this high profile uh, showdown is really what it is. Do you think that will embolden uh, Senate Democrats uh, to uh, get rid of the filibuster for a voting rights bill? I mean, based on what Joe Manchin said, I mean, again, and, and, it's, and it's not Senate Democrats per se. It's the few Senate Democrats who are committed to not removing the Senate bus, the filibuster. There are plenty of Senate Democrats who would remove it tomorrow, including the Senate uh, Majority Leader Schumer, especially for voting rights, even if for nothing else. Um, so the question is, really, will this impact how those holdouts led by Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema view this issue? I think... No, but I do think what it will do is it's kept this issue of voting rights front and center within liberal media for a lot longer than it would have otherwise. And obviously liberal media and the liberal kind of activist core are very important to uh, Democratic politicians. And so the ones that do support getting rid of the filibuster will be more creative in how they might be able to add pro-voting rights uh, into other legislation that can pass via reconciliation. So we've already seen some commentary from Amy Klobuchar uh, who's the chair of the rules committee and who's been working on voting rights to say, can we add some aspects of pro voting rights legislation to the reconciliation bill? Can we add some incentives to States through the reconciliation bill? So I think the pressure, the attention, the focus has spurred on some supportive folks from being more creative and seeing what they can do on the margins. I don't think that it will change the perspective of folks like Joe Manchin. Wow. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right. Uh, let's talk about, I mentioned it briefly, uh, get your thoughts on the abortion legislation that uh, the Republicans are advancing in Texas and how do you think that's going to play out uh, nationally? Uh, it is uh, very uh, restrictive uh, when it regards to uh, limiting the, uh, a woman's right to get an abortion. Uh, but more significant, I think, or just as significant, uh, again, this empowering citizens uh, to file co- court cases uh, against the state, against doctors uh, for who uh, give, allow abortions to women. Once again, you talked about empowering people to show up at uh, polling places to intimidate election workers. Now they're empowering people uh, to file lawsuits to intimidate abortion providers. Uh, they're taking it to their empowerment movement uh, in a whole other direction. I'm sure it'll be, it, it will be challenged. I think it may have already been challenged, but how do you think it plays out politically uh, this kind of strategy from the Republicans? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's, it's, it's tough. Like I, you know, the, I'm not, and I'm not an expert in this and 
you know, I wish my, my friend, uh, my good friend, uh, you know, Hannah Lloyd, uh, who, who works for NARAL has more expertise on this, uh, might be able to weigh in. Maybe I'll talk to her after this, but my, my perception is, um, that within the state of Texas, I'm not sure how this will land. You know, Wendy Davis was the gubernatorial candidate in 2014. She made her name by, uh, by doing a filibuster or the equivalent of a filibuster in the Texas Senate house to prevent a abortion legislation. Now they ended up passing that legislation anyway, very restrictive. Uh, but then it was overturned by the, by the Supreme court, um, or the courts. I can't remember if it was the, uh, the appellate or, or ultimately the Supreme court, but one of the courts overturned it, obviously because of what happened over the last four years, the Trump, the courts have changed and people are concerned that, that, that any kind of anti-abortion legislation that, that, that goes, um, that is challenged to go to the Supreme court will not, you might not get a favorable outcome. And it will basically be a means through which they chip away at Roe v. Wade without overturning it is by allowing states to, to pursue kind of get as closest to the line as they possibly can. Um, I don't know because I don't have the polling historically. I think that this abortion issues have not been, we haven't been able to make a lot of hay on that in Texas as in terms of using that as a, as a cudgel against the Republicans, I could be wrong. And it could be that these restrictions have reached a point to where we can actually turn this against them in the election. And there could be a backlash. Um, I'm not as plugged into that particular organizing as some others. So I'm not quite sure, uh, but it is something to, to, for us to find out um, whether or not they've re- actually reached a point to where we can actually say, come on, this, this is ridiculous. And I know there's national polling that suggests that maybe this is too far, but I, I don't know if we've been able to have a lot of success in Texas of actually doing executing that messaging strategy uh, in, in an electoral context. Well, I, I do know that it's been successful here in Illinois. Uh, and we talk about it on this show all the time. Uh, the way pro-choice movement has successfully, and I give a shout out to Terry Cosgrove, a personal pack, because uh, I know he's probably listening to this, uh, have, have, have been very successful, I think, uh, at, um, well, if nothing else, causing tremendous strife in the Republican Party. Uh, Bruce Rauner, the former governor, uh, was uh, faced a, a rebellion in his ranks uh, because he was indecisive on the issue of of abortion rights. First, he was uh, for abortion rights, then he was against it, and then he was for it again. And so the result was just a challenge, actually. Uh, Jeannie Ives ran against him. So I was just, I realized that Illinois is a far yeah. different state than Texas. Uh, I was just hoping that Texas had changed demographically enough to the point where Wendy Davis's position was now far more prominent among uh, the electorate than it was in 2014. But you, we don't, you don't know if we're at that stage yet. Yeah. I don't know if it's at that stage. I mean, I think there, yeah. I mean, I think that the demographics is really not even, I mean, the demographics have shifted, but more so what shifted is that, there's been massive investment in turning out the people were there. Even when Wendy Davis was running, they just weren't voting. The challenge is there are people who will vote Democrat within those untapped constituencies that may not be pro. They're they're, they're probably pro choice, but they're probably more moderate on choice. And it may not be an animating issue uh, for them in the, in the negative, if that makes sense. Right. So a lot of Latino voters, 
may be pro-choice, but they may have more moderate views on it. And, may, and it may not be the issue that animates them and inspires them and, and causes them to want to turn out or, 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 or switch their allegiance back to the Democratic Party if they happen to be uh, Republicans. And so it may be an issue that there's support, but it doesn't drive the electorate in a way that, that, that helps Democrats win. Yeah. And then obviously to take power to overturn those laws. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, let us uh, move on uh, to uh, Chicago. The last time we're in the show, uh, we had a, a fascinating conversation about crime, uh, possible solutions uh, that the police might uh, follow to reducing crime or solutions that we as si- the leaders of our uh, county and city could pursue uh, to reduce crime. Uh, and uh, this is my opportunity to give a, sh- a shout out to uh, the hideout. We're going to our, our next first Tuesday show, which is August 3rd. Uh, judge Tim Evans, the chief judge of Cook County, Timothy Evans, former alderman, uh, will be joining us to talk about the whole issue of pretrial detention. Talk about the issue of uh, people uh, out uh, with braces on their uh, tracking braces on their, on their ankles. Uh, and that uh, David, Brown, the police chief of Chicago, and Lori Lightfoot as well, have advocated there are too many criminals, dangerous people out on the streets uh, who are committing crimes. That's part of the reason why uh, more people are getting shot. So we'll be having that conversation with uh, Judge Judge Evans. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, Tickets available for that if you wanted to come out to see that. Uh, But uh, I know, Jason, you have some thoughts on the whole issue of pretrial detention as a tactic uh, on crime prevention. Talk about that. Yeah, thanks, but I appreciate this because this has been on my mind. In fact, I, I was having a conversation with my good buddy, Henry, uh, about this. You know, the thing that I first want to set out there as a, as a kind of North Star when we talk about pretrial detention is the foundation of our criminal justice system is the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. That presumption is actually thousands of years old. It's in Abrahamic law. It's in Roman law. It's in Justinian law. It's in English common law. It's embedded in the constitution in the fourth, fifth and sixth amendment. It is confirmed by the coffee uh, Supreme court case in 1895. And from 1895 to 1970, um, that presumption of innocence was basically coincided with um, a a presumption of pretrial release. Because the idea is if, you're innocent. What right do we as the state have to detain you? You're innocent, regardless of the evidence or what everybody said, until you have gone in front of an adjudicate, a lawyer, I mean, a judge or a jury, you are innocent. And what right do we have in a free society to detain, imprison, punish someone who is, by the legal standard, innocent? So the goal of pretrial is to ensure that people who are charged with crimes will eventually and quickly make it in front of an adjudicate where then their guilt or innocence will be determined. The burden is on the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And then the court will decide what their sentence is. That is a just constitutional, uh, uh, moral way of doing criminal justice. And so if I were David Brown and I was going to critique the pretrial, I would, there, I would only be able to, I would only critique them on two grounds. What percentage of people are actually showing up for their court date? And are we able to move trials in an expedient enough matter in order to ensure that justice is not delayed, right? Because justice delayed is justice denied. So if there's a critique about the speed of trials, 
I'm willing to listen to that. And then there's critique about the fact that people aren't showing up for court dates. But the idea that people of what people are doing while they're out on pretrial release, those people are innocent per the law. And we don't have the right to detain. Now, since the 70s, there's been all these exceptions made. And, and we've started to use pretrial in a way that, that it was never intended, uh, which is to say, well, we know you're innocent, but we think you're dangerous. We think you're a risk. And so we're going to, even though you're innocent, we're still going to come up with a way where we can hold you, right? We can, we can detain you. And frankly, I think that's a very slippery slope. Uh, and it, it became a slippery slope because law enforcement started relying upon that pre-trial detention as a form of incapacitation. It's like, look, we don't know if we're going to be able to build a case against you. We don't know if we'll get a conviction, but we can get you off the streets for a period of time, a week, a month, three months, in this liminal space where you're presumed innocent, but we're still going to have a judicial system that's willing to hold you. And if we can get enough people off the street who we think are dangerous, then over time that might reduce violent crime, right? And so what happens is that your entire police force orientation becomes a dragnet. Let's arrest as many people, get them caught up in this pretrial detention, uh, and that will actually be a way for us to get criminals off the street. And even if we got to get like, you know, we, we, we don't even know who we're getting. We don't know if they're violent offenders. We don't know if it's just a guy with a gun because he's, he lives in a dangerous neighborhood. We don't know if it's a petty guy. We don't know if it's a serious, we don't know, but we're just hoping that law of averages and law of numbers will get enough of those people off the street, you know, that, that it'll start to see an impact. And when you gear and you organize your police force around that dragnet, your other skills atrophy, your skills of investigation, your skills of, of building cases and, and getting information and building strong cases because the other outcome of, of a focus on, on pre-trial detention is that you don't no longer need cases because what happens is the overall majority of people who are detained pre-trial, they never go to, 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 to court. They settle, they plea out. And a lot of times what happens is they'll stack your charges, right? And then they'll plea you down to the lowest charge because they got to give you something to plea and they want you to plea because they don't want to have to go through the effort of actually adjudicating you and building a case. And also a lot of times the state's attorney knows that the case that they were actually given by CPD probably wouldn't give you a conviction anyway in front of a jury. These cases are incredibly weak that, 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 that they're submitting to the, the state's attorney. I'm talking about no physical evidence, no ballistics, no witnesses, no motive. If you guys could see, I beg you, if you guys understood the kind of court, the kind of reports that the state's attorney is getting to try to build these convictions, they're really being uh, disturbed. And we as the people are being disturbed by the weakness of these cases. And the reason why they're weak is because the muscles of building those cases in CBD is atrophy. And so they're primarily uh, uh, leverage to pretrial detention as their primary crime fighting strategy. And that makes us all less safe because the actual violent offenders are smart enough and shrewd enough not to get caught up in that dragnet. And we're not able to build cases against them. And they're out reoffending. McCarthy, Jerry McCarthy, Gary McCarthy himself, you know, famously said that we actually know that it's only a small percentage of people who are actually committing the disproportionate percentage of violence, shootings and murders. But the dragnet is not designed to get to target those people specifically. It's designed to get anybody. And the overwhelming majority of people, even people who are caught without a Floyd card or they, they're illegally carrying a gun, they are not shooters. They are not the people doing the things that you see on the news. 
it's hard for people to understand that because it's just like, well, they're committing a law and they look a certain way and they're from a certain community. But think about police. Every police officer is issued a weapon. There are thousands of officers who in a 25 year career have never fired their service arm. Only a small percentage of officers have actually ever fired their gun, used it in the line of duty. Same thing with, with, with unconstitutional policing, police misconduct, police abuse. When we look at it, we see it's the same officers over and over again doing the same thing. That's how the criminal world works. There are a percentage of folks who are shooters, who will kill people, who will do these kind of things. The rest of the people, yeah, they're out there selling a little drug, but they're basically just trying to survive. They don't want to shoot a gun. They don't want to be in a shootout. This stuff is scary. They're not actually that different. They're the same as us in a lot of ways. And so we understand that the dragnet is not a good policy because we're not necessarily catching the people that we need to catch. And then we, we, we lose the ability to build cases against the type of people that we want to build cases on. Um, and there was recently a, a FOIA that came out of a famous murder case in Chicago, a famous gang homicide case, a young woman named Ja'Kyra Barnes who was killed um, in, in Woodlawn area. She was known as a, one of the only female real gangsters. She was alleged to have committed a number of homicides. She was killed, right? The FOIA, the, the, the police report, the police had a suspect that they had identified, but they came up with no motive. They had no ballistics. They had no physical evidence. They couldn't, they didn't even bother trying to invalidate the, the, the suspects, uh, um, uh, the, their alibi. They had a couple of witnesses who originally identified the person, but then refused to cooperate. And then they had one person who was like, yeah, I think that's the guy. They submitted that case to the state's attorney. This is under Anita Alvarez, because this is 2014. This is not Kim Fox and criminal justice reform. Minded. This is Anita Alvarez. Anita Alvarez's people looked at that case and within two hours said, get out of here. There's no way we can bring this. You guys brought us nothing. So police department, they didn't say, take that and say, you all right, let's go back to the drawing board. Let's just reopen this investigation. Let's see if we can get some more evidence. You know what they did? They just closed the case. They said, we think it's this guy. We don't have enough evidence to prove it, but as far as we're concerned, case closed. Now that one murder was part of a gang war that probably resulted in 10 to 15 more murders. Their inability to build a case that was even strong enough to result in a charge means that now you haven't brought someone to justice and the cycle of retaliation must continue. That's the consequence of not being able to build cases and solely relying on the stopgap effort measure of pretrial detention. And so all of us as Chicagoans who are worried about safety, we need to stop falling for that narrative because it's making us all less safe. Brown shouldn't be talking about pretrial detention because it shouldn't be as important part of his crime crime strategy as he's made. Wow. That is a, um, the first time, uh, Jason, that I've ever heard a quote unquote pragmatic counter argument, uh, to pretrial detention strategy. And as I told you before we went on the air, I've been hearing, uh, pretrial detention theory since I moved to Chicago in 81. And when I got here, there was, a, a another McCarthy, not big Mac, a, who was working for the police department. And he was a big proponent of just sweeping the streets, just mass arrests. Uh, this is in the eighties. <laughs> Man, I'm old. This goes back to the eighties. And so it's always been around, but I've never heard the, I've heard people say 
The ACLU argument that it's an infringement on rights. I've made the argument many times when they use marijuana, when they use reefer as the pre, the pretext for people sweeping off the streets. It's so hypocritical because on the other hand, they're looking away while everybody's smoking reefer in Lollapalooza, you know, so they, they use it to bring money from the city and then they use it also to sweep up the street. But I've never heard anybody say, you know, it's counter-effective as a policing strategy uh, because it diverts our abilities from the stuff we should be doing, which is what? Real investigations, real detective work? Is that the point you're making? No, that's exactly right. And it, and it, and it changes the orientation of even the beat cops um, because the beat cops are now in this kind of uh, constant pressure campaign, all these pretextual stops, trying to just find people to, bra- to, 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 to incorporate into the dragnet. And that alienates the entire uh, relationship between the beat cop and the beat and, and, and folks on the beat and the people who hang out in the corners. And these are the people who witness things. These are the people who see things. These are people who overhear things. And some of them can be cultivated into informal informants that can help us build cases because not everybody. And I probably said this on the last thing. Part of it is our unwillingness to actually see folks were involved in some aspect of the criminal uh, of criminal enterprise as human beings. So we can't relate to them, but it's actually not hard to understand that not everyone who's involved in criminal life is interested in the level of violence. Some of the extreme forms of retribution that go on, there are differences of opinions, but because the relationship between law enforcement and these folks have become so soured because they're so alienated by these pressure campaigns where there's no leniency and it's just trying to get as many people in the system as possible. Even the guys who really aren't doing that kind of extreme violence, well then the relationships break down. And so literally, uh, uh, you know, police department says, well, we can't get people to cooperate. Well, the job of law enforcement is to figure out how to solve that problem. That's, that's an age old problem, right? But you do it through building relationships. You do it through give and take, you do it through, you catch somebody with something on them and you say, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about this. I'm going to let this go, but here's what I need. We know there's something going on over here. We need your eyes and ears open, right? People don't maybe not want to hear that kind of stuff, but if we're really trying to, to use the $1.8 billion that we spend on CPD effectively, they've got to get better at solving crimes and bringing folks to justice within the boundary of our constitution and and, and our fundamental principles. And, And I'll just say this one thing. I want to be very clear here because I think one mistake that progressives mistake is not acknowledging something that is unequivocally true and people like Brown can use in a manipulative way. So I want to be very clear by not having an unconstitutional pre-detention policy. There will be people who are on pre-trial release who will commit crimes. They will commit felonies. Some of them will commit violent crimes. There will be some percentage of people where that happens. And those are tragedies. And those are things that we will never, any crime, we will never take lightly because I'm very keen on the the, the, the damage that crime does both to the, the direct victim and the, and, the, and the residual. So I don't want to pretend like that's not a thing or say that there are no cases or that never happens. The issue is there are a whole range of things that we could potentially do to try to reduce the threat of victimization to zero. But in a free democratic society, we've put up 
railing to say that we can't just do anything. We can't do everything. We can't keep everyone in prison indefinitely. Habitual offenders who get out of, of, of serving time and then commit another crime. If we follow that logic where the goal is to prevent everything at all costs, we wouldn't be able to have a constitution. There would be no due process. There would be no fourth, fifth, or sixth amendment. We would detain everyone indefinitely who we even thought could commit a crime. But we as a free society had already decided, not just as a free American society, but as a free democratic society going back to, to ancient history, have decided that that's not that 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 you can't you can't have a society like that. You've got to figure out a way to get as much safety as you can within the bounds of a constitutional framework that has respect for individual rights and liberties. We all have to be invested in that. And so if we start there, let's figure out within the rules and within the rail guards how we can be better as opposed to being seduced by someone who argues that we should pull down the rail guards and start detaining people who are innocent indefinitely, start locking people up indefinitely and taking away all of our protections via the constitution. That's all I'm asking for the people of Chicago is that let's be safer, but let's not throw away all of our rights and all of our fundamental values about human, human liberties to do so. We can do much better than we are and still be within the bounds of the constitution. If we have the right leadership and the right commitment. By the way, if you want to, to hear another articulation of this point, uh, that coming from the left, just listen to uh, the MAGA people who defend Kyle Rittenhouse, who was the shooter in Wisconsin, uh, and his uh, the presumption that he is that it's just listen, right. just listen to them sometime. You'll hear, uh, you just close your eyes, you'll think you're, you're listening to Jason Lee talk about uh, what's... Uh, pre-trial detention strategies in the city of Chicago. A uh, couple things we'll close with to see if you have any hope on this front. One is that the, the news in today's paper is that there's going to be a compromise and it's maybe by tomorrow, uh, Chicago will uh, have a, created a civil a civilian oversight of CPD. Uh, that uh, matter will be for the city council uh, tomorrow. I got a feeling it'll be deferred published, but whatever. Uh, it'll be eventually passed. And uh, Eric Adams, we talked about him the last time we were on the show. Uh, I get a lot of grief from my lefty friends. I, I was really, uh, there's something about Eric Adams that, uh, I found him. I probably, as I always say, I would have voted his ranked choice. I would have voted for Wiley cause all my kids would have made me, but I really, uh, liked what I heard from Eric Adams trying to walk this fine line that you just, uh, articulated Jason Lee out of New York. So do you have any hope uh, on these fronts, Eric Adams victory uh, in New York in the democratic primary uh, and the uh, compromise in the city council? So I'll start with Adams. I think Adams is a very interesting figure who is a very interesting, particular local figure in New York who had a very um, unique career as a police officer and avowed, recognized internal reformer of the police, which is a rare position for someone to find them of, find themselves in. And when they interviewed voters in, you know, so, so the national media said, you know, Eric Adams' victory is a rejection of wokeness. It's a rejection of kind of progressive uh, attitudes about law enforcement and public safety. It's a rejection of defund the police. 
And I'm not willing to make sweeping pronouncements about the significance of that because I think Eric Adams is such a unique figure. And a lot of people who voted for Eric Adams actually saw him as a conduit for intelligent police reform. But the thing that, because of his experience and his track record of trying to reform the police, not by dismantling it, but by actually understanding where the levers and what we can do maybe to in practice get better policing. And I think that's what a lot of people supported. So I don't think it was a, 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 a vote for carte blanche return to the most worst policies of the NYPD over time. Although Eric Adams did say some things that seemed to suggest that he might be interested in a, a kind of return to a stop and frisk scenario. But even with that, he was kind of telling people that he knew how to design it to avoid some of the constitutional excesses. Um, you know, Eric Adams has kind of leaned into this narrative a little bit, which has kind of problematized it because even though he's not like your standard, you know, tough on crime, Rudy Giuliani guy, his rack record's different. Uh, he's kind of leaned into it. I mean, he's kind of leaning to it at a higher level, but he's trying to say that like, we need to rebrand the democratic party. I'm a Biden Democrat. I'm pragmatic. And uh, there's too many excesses on the left in terms of the sloganeering and some of the language he's really trying to, trying to, um, trying to, uh, try, you know, make that case. But he did have a great line uh, on Stephanopoulos where they said, um, is this a rejection, uh, you know, of wokeness? And he said, George, some of us never went to sleep. Um, and I thought that was a great line because it kind of spoke to this fact that a lot of the progressive zeitgeist, one of the things it kind of misses is that there are people who've been working in communities that have been dealing with these problems for years. And they don't necessarily look like the people of, of the, that we see now, but it's not like they were cognizant or didn't care or weren't trying to, to solve and reconcile different competing interests at, at, at a time in American history where these things were even more complicated from a certain standpoint because crime was even higher than it is now and you really had to figure out how to reconcile these things. And so I do think that is an important, important point. And part of Adam's appeal uh, was that he was able to be clear with folks that he understood their concerns and that he actually had something to say that was more than just my standard talking points. I think people can tell uh, as a progressive, you're truly listening to their concerns on public safety, or you're just waiting for them to be quiet. So you can trot out your talking points about, you know, we need fundamental investments. We need this, we need that. It's not that people disagree, but there's nuance there that you've got to acknowledge before you just pivot to that. Because people tend to think, yes, we need that. That's foundational. That's long-term, but I've got some short-term problems and issues that I'm not hearing you speak about and recognize in a way that makes me think you actually care about what I'm about. I mean, what I'm concerned about, as opposed to just using my suffering as a conduit for your own agenda. And I think that's where we go wrong. And Eric Adams was good at letting people know, Hey, I understand you. I'm not just using this as a pivot point. I want to be right here with you on what you're concerned about. Now, pivoting for a second to the, to, to what you said about the Chicago ordinance, frankly, you know, and some people might be disappointed with me for saying this, and I'm happy if they want to call me and talk offline, I'm disappointed with the compromise legislation. I don't believe that the coalition got enough uh, because the fundamental question, first of all, let me step back. There are real questions about whether or not civilian accountability is actually a major conduit for police reform in general. And there are people on the left who argue that this whole thing is a fool's errand and that really civilian accountability has been tried and it really doesn't make that significant of a difference, right? I'm not willing to, I'm willing to, to, to work and go with the people who are advocating for civilian accountability right, to say that it could have a positive impact. But the main sticking points, as far as I understood it, were authority. That if we're going to have civilian, um, you know, a, a civilian uh, accountability, we want that to have real authority and governance over the law enforcement. 
We want the ability to hire the superintendent. We want the ability to, um, to set policy. We want the ability to set the budget, right? And these are big, dramatic changes. Um, and those, to me, were like the real critical issues of whether you want to get real authority to govern law enforcement as civilians or whether the mayor was going to retain control. And what they did, in my opinion, is this legislation basically gives the mayor all the same control that they had. They just add in some inflection points and some maybe some some stunt points and some ways in which you can make some noise. But ultimately, the authority remains unchanged. And what my fear is that by making this big announcement that we reached some compromise, you know, for political reasons, you're going to give a signal to people out in the public that there's been some dramatic shift in, in how policing is governed when there really hasn't been. Um, and so that's why I'm concerned about this compromise. I think that, frankly, g- given how unwilling the mayor was to relinquish those controls, you might have been better off just holding it and saying we're going to work on a, a, a new mayor or, or a mayor who is more amenable to real civilian authority because this is going to be on every campaign mailer and ad that the mayor does is we made this huge reform and I don't think you're getting enough out of this to give her that talking point when ultimately she's been working against your agenda and the agenda of other reformers for her entire morality. And so I'm a little bit disappointed and somewhat shocked to see this compromise happen. Um, and look, I'm happy to be corrected by folks that were on the room. I know I understand deeply how organizing is and how difficult it is to keep coalitions together and how, you know, people don't have the, 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 you know, it's hard to keep people fighting indefinitely and telling the people who've been slaving away on this legislation that we should hold out for two more years on the hope that we can get a new, you know, I get how difficult that conversation may have had to be, may have been, but I just don't see enough compromise from the mayor on true authority for this board to, to, to give what could end up being a significant political boon for her reelection. Oh, it will be. And you hit it on the head. Uh, I, I, will, I expect to see an email from the mayor's uh, political director. I get them all the time. You know, I, I don't know why they sent them to me, but what did they send them? Actually, they sent them to my wife, to my email. Jason, I cannot explain this. But anyway, I will get that email. Uh, good news. Uh, mayor Lightford has delivered on her promise. Uh, now, I'm, I'm waiting for the spin on elected school board, uh, which she, she opposed and is still against. Yeah. Uh, but... That was a great uh, analysis, and I'm going to be uh, raising some of your concerns. We're going to have guests coming on to talk about the civilian oversight. Uh, we'll see what's going to happen tomorrow. My guess is there'll be a deferred publish, probably from the the right, ironically, uh, in the city council, Jason. Uh, and then the matter will be brought up at a subsequent city council meeting, the next one they have, and it'll pass overwhelming. But we'll see what Carlos Ramirez rose in a alderman of the 35th ward and uh, Rosanna Rodriguez uh, Sanchez and Byron. Yeah. Have to say. And I'm injured and I know all those people and I, you know, respect them and I, and you know, and maybe this is because I haven't had a chance to talk to any of them yet. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm open to being corrected in, in, in my interpretation of the ordinance but that was just my initial read of it. And I did go through and read the new language, um, basically every, every, every section of it. Yeah. Uh, I just did the short read, which was, uh, the newspaper articles and this, uh, the, the sun times and the tribute, but they all hit the same points that you did. Uh, all right, Jason, we covered a lot of territory. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us once a month or so. I, I bugged this guy into coming on the show and it's always a blast talk, uh, Texas, Chicago, Illinois, 
Uh, I think we talked Georgia once. Actually. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah, did Georgia. Yeah. So yeah, and and so thank thank you, Ben. I love I love uh, love mixing it up. Uh, and again, I just want to leave people with this thought that when you thank pretrial detention, thank detention of the innocent, because based on our legal uh, statute, that's what we're doing. And how much do we want to rely on detention of the innocent as our way of, of, of dealing with crime in this city? And that's, that's the question I posed. Very good. All right. That's uh, Jason Lee. Thank you very much, Jason Lee. Also want to thank Larry Alkoff and Diane Palmer from SEIU Local 73. That was a fascinating sure. conversation. I don't know if you got to hear that, Jason, but. I did. I caught the end of it. I was, I was glad to hear their perspective. You know, obviously I, I've got, you know, relationships on both sides, but I was, I was interested to hear their perspective on it. Well, I hope you convey this to your, your uh, connections on the other side. It does not help the Democratic cause, in my humble opinion. I'm going to say this. This is Ben, not Jason. It does not help the Democratic cause when Democratic politicians are playing hardball with the frontline workers who do the jobs that have to be done in the middle of a freaking pandemic, Jason Lee. The people who like wheel you around in the hospital, mop up the floors, etc. These are frontline workers. We're playing tough with them. They're making $16 an hour starting. I just, you know, the old lefty in me, my blood boils when I hear this. And uh, so, uh, yeah, anyway, that's my opinion. We don't do any uh, service to the... All right, uh, Jason Lee, thank you very much. Larry Alkoff, Diane Palmer, and of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of all in Illinois, without whom the show would be possible. As Jason Lee will tell you, back home at home, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. (laughs) See you tomorrow, everybody. Take care, guys. This little light of mine. Yay for our teachers! Yay for our teachers! How did you... How did you... I don't want an answer. It's not something you ignore. I want an answer. It's not something you ignore.